Hi everyone, welcome to GradCast. We are the official radio show of the Society of Graduate Students at Western University. My name is Nick. And my name is Connor. Every week, we interview a different grad student about their research, life at Western, and plans for the future. And this week, we are interviewing a very interesting student here looking at math and the universe. His name is Gianfranco Bino. Thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. So, uh, Gianfranco, why don't you tell us a little bit about your research to start? Um, Well, in a nutshell, what I'm doing is I'm studying the effects of magnetic fields on star formation. So pretty much trying to see whether there's a correlation between the two, so whether magnetic fields do have a direct effect on whether stars form or not. Okay, so magnetic fields being, so, uh, you know, I think magnetic field, I think of, you know, the magnetic field around the Earth Mm -hmm. or just on a simple magnet. Mm -hmm. Um, But what do you mean by, like, magnetic fields just, are they just sort of floating around and they're somehow involved in star formation? What, What exactly do you mean by that? Um, well, magnetic fields permeate the entire universe, Okay. right? So just like the Earth has a magnetic field, the sun does, and every planet, every celestial body, or every, everything in the universe essentially has a magnetic field. So this uh, magnetic field sort of permeates the entire universe, and the strength of the magnetic field is not constant, meaning it's stronger in some regions and not as strong in other regions. And within these regions called molecular clouds, these are sort of the... Um, hot spots for star formation. This is where we expect all stars to start forming. Um, within the molecular clouds, there's certain regions that are more massive, and if the mass exceeds this thing known as the genes mass, um, we expect that region to gravitationally collapse and eventually form a star. Um, so what we want to see is we want to look at these regions and sort of measure and sort of take a look at the magnetic field there and see Um, if that strength, if that particular strength of magnetic field is preventing a star from forming there or even encouraging a star uh, to form there. So you're saying in some of these, they're called molecular fields. Molecular clouds. Molecular clouds. There are, uh, that these are regions where stars likely form, but sometimes they don't form. Yeah. Okay. So if the sort of mass, if if a region within this molecular cloud is less than this so-called genes mass, um, then we don't expect a star to form there because there's not enough uh, material there to have that region gravitationally collapse into a star. And you think that that genes mass has something to do with magnetic field? Not necessarily. Okay. <laughs> so the genes mass is completely independent of the magnetic field. The genes mass is more so related to whether that region will collapse under gravity. Um, but there, there are certain regions where, you know, mass is, let's say, greater than the genes mass, but we don't see a star forming. And we want to, like, our hypothesis is essentially, well, maybe the star is not forming because it has something to do with how the magnetic field is in that region. And we're trying to sort of find, find that relationship. I see. So star formation and collapse being something that takes an incredible amount of time, mm-hmm. how do you get data on this kind of thing if you're trying to observe it? How do you observe something that takes such an astronomical amount of time? Um, we don't necessarily get data on uh, the dynamics of the region over an extended period of time. The data we aim to collect is the magnetic field data there. Um, and we sort of gather that data and sort of develop a mathematical model, and we fit that model to our data. And from that, we can make uh, predictions, we can make relations, and we can sort of test and see if, um, okay, we can sort of test our hypothesis that way. 
So follow-up question mm-hmm. on that then, how do you see a magnetic field in space? How do you visualize that kind of data? You don't necessarily see it. Um, you can um, de- detect it. Uh, it's very difficult. Um, you need very, very, very sensitive instruments to directly detect uh, magnetic field strength. So the general way of going about it is through uh, light polarization. And we're using this code called Polaris, which essentially um, you'd put in a magnetic field model, which we developed, and essentially will output the polarization of light. And from that polarization of light, we can then find a magnetic field. So we, 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 we find magnetic fields indirectly. This light polarization, uh, what, ex- what exactly is that? I mean, I always thought that light was sort of like a particle, but also a wave. And is this polarization something related to that? Um, it's more so uh, related to the wave properties of light. Okay. So as you know, l- l- um, light is an electromagnetic wave. Mm-hmm. And the polarization in, I guess, the simplest terms is the geometric like orientation of the oscillation of that wave relative to the, r- the direction of motion. So, right. So that's in a nutshell what, it, what, what polarization of light is. So you're taking, you're measuring the polarization of light using this computer code called Polaris, mm-hmm. and that is what's developing your uh, idea of whether there's a magnetic field there? Well, we know there's a magnetic field there. Okay. So then what does the code transform it into? It tells us how strong or weak that magnetic field strength is. Got it. And from there, then we can make, you know, hopefully if we do this for different regions and you know, we, we do this a bunch of times, we can see whether there's a correlation between magnetic field strength and, say, rate of star formation. Mm-hmm. And now, from what I understand, you have a code that looks at one step of this, right? Uh, that, you're, you're developing models for, yeah. for this. Yeah. Well, one of the things I'm wondering before we get into into that model that, mm-hmm. you're, that you're working on is, why is it that we can measure... Um, you know, these magnetic fields, but not like the mass of, of the stars there, or, or sorry, of the, of the, like the particles and the molecules there that are in that cloud. The, why we can't measure the mass yeah. of the cloud. Um, like, why do we have to go through this indirect way? This may be not in my general area of expertise, but I don't believe there is a direct correlation between, let's say, particle or atomic mass and magnetic field. Okay. So the magnetic field we're looking at is a sort of universal magnetic field that is permeating the interstellar or intergalactic mm. medium. Okay. Um, mm. Obviously, there are there is uh, some magnetic interactions between particles themselves, but those interactions in comparison to a global magnetic field are so weak that they you can pr- pretty much ignore right. them. Okay. So, day to day, how much of your work involves coding? How much is reading? How much is writing? Like, what does the day to day work of this this kind of subject look like? Um, A lot of it is, I'd say, mainly reading, more so even than coding. Um, The coding part kind of comes in when we know what we want to do. So if I know I want to get this bit of information and I know how to get it, then I know what to code. So I'd say roughly, I'd say 30% of my work involves coding. Um, Maybe 60% involves reading. Reading is very important. We read various uh, papers, you know, a lot of different papers have developed models for this uh, already. Um, so, you know, th- those are that's a good starting position to what we want to do. Uh, um, our mathematical model is a little different, so I'd say that maybe the last ten percent is actually doing, you know, analytic ma- analytical mathematics in developing a sort of model. 
And uh, the the mathematical models that you're creating, those are separate from Polaris? Yes, yes. Okay, so at what f- step of the process are you developing these models for? Um, so prior to myself getting into the research, my supervisor, um, along with some colleagues, had already developed this sort of model. Um, it just hasn't been tested yet. Mm-hmm. So this model was, in a way, handed to me. Um, it was developed um, from Maxwell's equations, and Maxwell's equations essentially are um, equations that define, you know, all of electromagnetism. And based off of those principles, they developed this sort of mathematical model that they would like to model some sort of system with. So um, what I'm doing is taking that model and um, trying to fit it to the system that we're trying to make predictions for. And so what are the sort of questions you're aiming to answer with the model? Um, whether whether magnetic field strength um, does prevent or encourage star formation in molecular clouds. That's, I guess, the main question we're trying to answer. Um, we know either or we'll, we'll be happy for. We're looking mainly to find a relation and sort of if we can find this relation, you know, then publish that and say, hey, um, you know, star formation is dependent on magnetic fields in this way. What else... Uh can these magnetic fields do in regards to the longevity of stars? So they help with the formation of the star or they hinder the formation of the star, mm-hmm. but do they also have an effect on the lifespan of the star or the eventual supernova of the star or mm-hmm. what have you? As far as stellar evolution goes, I'm not sure how much magnetic field comes into play. I know for a fact um, chemical composition, luminosity, uh, temperature, and all of these things play a huge role in stellar evolution. Um, in my, you know, from my understanding right now, more so than magnetic field strength does. So once the star is formed, then you have all of these other uh, physical processes to sort of take over and carry the star into its into its lifetime. So, what got you interested in this topic to begin with? Um, well, my background is in physics before I came to Western and studied applied math. So I've always been very interested in physical phenomena, um, particularly uh, astrophysics. Um, and I mean, star formation and stars in general are things we don't understand quite well. Um, I mean, you know, we have some sort of you know, basic understanding on their evolution and this and that. But, you know, stellar systems are very hard to, ex- you know, observe, you know, a lot of the a lot of the very interesting things happen over very large timescales. So um, for me, it's more so the thought of trying to learn, trying to learn something that uh, it's not really well known about. So it gives me the opportunity to kind of um, take my own direction and take my own path into this. Were you like when you when you were young, were you like sort of interested in space? Like, did you have the whole astronaut dream type thing, or was it more <laughs> like was it more like the you know, the interest in, like, the, the celestial sort of um, growing, questions. Growing up, I, I feel like my I, I was definitely interested in space. I was definitely always intrigued by space. Um, I, I was more interested in sort of planets, so things within mm-hmm. our solar system. Um, you know, as I grew older and I started to learn more, uh, my interest definitely spread out to outside our solar system. So I don't really – not that I don't care too much, but – things within our solar system don't really interest me it's more so things that are so far-fetched to you know thinking on a day-to-day basis those sort of questions are what really uh, interest me and fascinate me um and uh, you know i'm just thinking about all the um uh 
the announcements by NASA all the time these days, like from Mars, for example. Mm-hmm. And I think they're going to be uh, revealing the first photograph of a black hole soon. Mm-hmm. Are, are those things that sort of that you watch as they come out? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Bla- black holes are it's another thing that I'm extremely fascinated with. I've done research on black holes as well. Oh, that's amazing. Um, so very interesting things, very, very weird astrophysical things. Yeah. So black holes, yeah, they're definitely something I like, I like to follow. Right. This 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 might be a secondary tangent, but uh, what kind of relationship does any kind of magnetic field have with a black hole, and why might that be different from, say, a, a star? Mm-hmm. Well, um, a black hole. Just I'm not sure if you guys are aware, a black hole is just a collapsed star mm-hmm. in a sense, right? So that magnetic field is still is still there. Um, now, one of the big questions that's still unanswered is, well, what's what's happening to the magnetic field within the black hole? Mm, and we don't yeah. really know that. You know, the magnetic field kind of just wraps itself around because anything that goes into a black hole, as you know, can't come out. Um, so, but like any sort of, uh, you know, massive body, um, there are, you know, there are two poles to a black hole. And you can see this a lot in, for example, quasars. Quasars are black holes that, you know, there's two jets of radiation that come out the top and the bottom. And these sort of align themselves with the direction of magnetic field. Right. Right. So... Um, magnetic field is still there. I don't know how it essentially differs from that of a star, um, but it still is there. That's amazing. So you, um, uh, from what I understand, you started in undergrad in physics. Yeah. When you did your undergrad, was it space-based physics, or did you sort of uh, more specialize as that went on? Um, I did I did uh, specialize in astrophysics, so mm-hmm. I did take a lot of astronomy courses. Got it. Um, but as my undergrad progressed, that's when I sort of started to become more interested in the mathematics of uh, yeah. of physics, and that's why I went into into applied math because I was starting to really be intrigued by the techniques used mm-hmm. into you know modeling the systems and solving certain things. Got it. Well, it's really good to know that because um, I think a lot of people will get stuck in sort of a like a track. They'll start in one mm-hmm. sort of field, and they maybe uh, you know get nervous of shifting position mm-hmm. um do you have any sort of advice for anyone who's thinking about those sort of things um i definitely think as soon as you have any sort of doubt definitely look look into different programs you might want to do um i think i i've always been a strong believer in you know if you graduate when you're 30 but you graduate and do something you love mm-hmm. it's definitely more worthwhile than graduating when you're 25 and you know having being stuck doing something you hate right. so I definitely think you should, you know, for people that are thinking of switching around, definitely play around and see what's out there mm-hmm. until you find something you enjoy because, I mean, you only have one life, so why spend it being, you know, doing something and you're miserable at, right? Right. So the relationship between physics and mathematics is definitely something I, I picture and I think I, I understand about the field. Is the computer science and the the coding aspect of this something that you may have picked up on the fly? Something that you went into this understanding? Mm-hmm. How how much does that come into play in what you do? Um, well, it's pretty safe to say that you would not be able to have any sort of um, career or even you know progress in any way in graduate school in physics or mathematics without understanding uh, how to code. Yeah. Um, so I sort of picked that up in my research in my undergrad. Um, there were courses that were given, but I'd say the bulk of my knowledge and the bulk of what I understood from coding came directly from doing research and implementing those techniques. Because, I mean, formally doing things, you know, on a test is one thing, but actually s- seeing how it comes into play in a realistic case 
is is something else and i think that's something that people value more i completely agree we i'm uh, in the neuroscience program and it's like totally about computers and mm -hmm. computer programming mm -hmm. all the time absolutely definitely now, um, you're in the applied mathematics now, um, and you got into that via physics. Mm -hmm. um, are you interested in looking at how math can be applied in other ways, like maybe other sciences or other fields? Um, absolutely. Um, so my background and my research is in physics, um, but my goal eventually is to sort of go into quantitative finance. Mm -hmm. um, that is what I want to branch out to, um, mainly because, like I said, I've sort of really fell in love with the math the mathematics and the techniques used so I, fe I feel like you know that's definitely something that can be applicable to financial models as well mm -hmm. so are you basically saying you're gonna save and fix our economy for us uh, i can only hope so <laughs> <laughs> the solution coming from space math right fixing exactly. Our economy. Yes. exactly well i think no one seems to come up with a solution yet so maybe that's the answer who knows that's <laughs> yeah, out there so are you planning to do that right after your master's or what's your sort of game plan there uh, well, my game plan right now is to hopefully uh, fast track into a PhD program. Mm -hmm. um, and then um, once I graduate from my PhD, hopefully in the midst of all this, I would like to get this thing known as a CFA certification. What's that? It's a chartered financial analyst. Okay. It's a certification. It's just um, very expensive. So mm. <laughs> saving up my money for that. And then eventually applying to, you know, quantitative financial positions. Sounds good. Mm-hmm. So why then are you planning to do the PhD? Um, well, f for one, I do I definitely do enjoy my work in in physics. Right. I definitely it's something I've loved doing uh, since I was in my undergrad, and I still in, I still love doing it now. Um, and I feel like you know the mathematics of physical systems is one of the more or most complex forms of mathematics that you can do. So. In a way, I'm kind of training myself to handle these very complicated things so that, you know, it can hopefully give me some leverage uh, when I'm applying to financial positions saying sort of, hey, um, I was I have experienced applying all of these mathematical techniques that you want to extremely complicated uh, systems. Um, I'm pretty sure I can hopefully can apply it to uh, financial systems. Okay. So something I'm often curious about is that do you agree with the idea that the math needs to be very complex because of how hard it is to directly measure things in space? Or is it just we measure these things in space and they're so complicated we need complicated math <laughs> to deal with it? I'd say, in my opinion, the reason the math needs to be complicated is because in, you know, in real life situations there are so many variables that come into physical systems that, you know, you know, variable A, B, C, all the way to Z are all dependent on one of another. So if you change one, you change everything else. And it's very, very difficult to come up with uh, a nice mathematical sort of algorithm or model that beautifully explains all of these. So a lot of times it needs to be very complex because there's just so many variables to, to think about. Right. And do you think that given what our ability to observe space is right now, we have access to as many of those variables as you want? Absolutely not. <laughs> I, I, there's many, many uh, systems, many things in space and in physics that have way too many variables for uh, you know the strongest computers right now to, to even calculate. So I'm not sure if you're familiar with this whole quantum computer thing that's just yeah. right around the corner. Oh, but yeah. The point of this is to sort of handle systems with all, with all these variables that right now our strongest computers can't do. That's interesting. I thought that I 
you know, thought the issue would be more that we don't know what the variables are, not necessarily that it's like a computer power problem. We definitely know what they are. We definitely know what's there. Um, there may be systems where we don't know what they are, but right now the main issue is there's too many variables, there's not enough computational power, and not enough time. <laughs> Running these huge codes right now. Like how many lines of code are we talking? Um, I've never personally developed any of these very sophisticated mm -hmm. codes, but you can, you can have codes that are just like pages and pages, you know, longer than books in terms of in terms of lines right. of code. Well, right? the longest code I've ever developed is a hundred lines. So <laughs> <Pretty good. laughs> getting there. <laughs> when you say if you have done this stage of your project already, when you hit run on some of the software. How long do you wait? Is it the kind of thing where you have this powerful computer running overnight at like a thousand degrees? Is it one of those things where you really hesitate before you click that OK button because it's about mm -hmm. to put the computer through the biggest workout of its life? Um, at this point, I've never really had to deal with that quite yet. Um, but a few of the colleagues in my research group have run programs that can take up to a week, two weeks, even wow. a month to run. Mm, man. So, you know, you definitely want to, you know, dot your I's and cross your T's before you hit that run button. Yeah. yeah so, so nerve wracking. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's nuts. So I want to ask you a little bit about, uh, just sort of moving back to your sort of idea to move into, um, like sort of finance mm -hmm. area. Um, I've personally, uh, personally talked to a lot of, you know, grad students here and I think a lot of people go into grad school with maybe the idea that they don't necessarily know what they want to do or they just sort of like a field in general. Mm -hmm. um, but then they get in and they sort of get sucked into like the whirlwind of academic life. What allows you personally to sort of look beyond that or, or see like other options? Mm -hmm. Well, you know, it was very, it wasn't easy for me to come to that sort of decision to want to go into finance because, um, you know, at the end of the day, when it's all said and done, my true passion is science and it is physics. Um, that's what I've been studying pretty much my whole life. Mm -hmm. um, but I was sort of thinking more so my lifestyle and understanding that jobs in academia are very difficult to come by nowadays. And if you're not willing to potentially move across the world, um, that may be that may not be something for you. Um, so for me, it's more so realizing that the thing about physics and science that really attracts me is the math. Right. And I can, you know, working in quantitative science is kind of like having your cake and eating it too. I can still do all of the, apply all of the mathematical techniques that I've used and I have developed in studying physics. But, you know, it's also, it also provides me with a job where, you know, if I'd like to stay in Canada, I can do that. It provides more stability for me. And not to mention the pay is a little better. Yeah. <laughs> true <laughs> enough. True. Um, and what sort of techniques did you use to sort of weigh the pros and cons of that? Um, like I said, it was it was mainly um, that that notion of stability. Mm. Um, you know, I, I don't picture myself moving. Uh, you know, like I said, if if for example you're a professor and your grant is ten years long, um, if I've lived in you know a city for ten years, you know maybe raise a family or whatever. Um, it would be very difficult for me to just pick all that up and move across the world. So. Um, stability has always been something that's been very important to me, uh, whether that be financially or, you know, with relationships or whatever. Um, so it it was mainly that that drew me to a career in finance as opposed to academia. Do you sort of see yourself, um, once you get into the finance world, to continue to dabble in physics or are you going to just leave that? Oh, I would absolutely keep, uh, you know, researching in mm -hmm. physics and stuff like that. Um, you know, I would even consider maybe 
lecturing at a local college or university if they mm-hmm. let me. Um, like I said, physics is always something that interest that interested me. Um, so as far as you know, reading up, doing research, that's something I'll never stop doing. Do you think physics and what you study is a topic that you find really easy to talk to anyone about? I know that when we're in an academic setting, we're typically talking to experts and people Mm -hmm. who know a lot about what we're talking about. But when you talk to maybe siblings or parents or friends who don't necessarily study physics, uh, do you find it's one of those things that's really, really easy to communicate? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, generally the questions that uh, I get from friends or people that are in particular in this field is sort of all of the uh, fun facts of physics, all the interesting, oh, tell me, you know, what you know about black holes and this and (laughs) that. So there's definitely a lot to talk about. There's definitely a lot that, you know, clearly interests other people, just like, you know, there's a lot that interests me in biology that I can can ask a biologist questions for days. But, you know what I'm saying, there's a certain level, you know, certain level of simplicity I need to keep and they would need to keep with me as well. But I definitely think there is a lot to talk about within physics. Now, um, when going to like a financial sort of thing, are you... Uh, keeping options open to, for example, work for some physics-related thing, like for the finances of a physics-related, like, I don't know, think tank or something? Um, I guess so. I mean, as long as at the end of the, j- the, the day, the job can provide me, I guess, the stability and the long-term stability that I need, mm-hmm. I'm definitely open to it. Right. And obviously, I would have to be something that I would enjoy doing. So something where I can apply the mathematical techniques that I've that, you know, that, I, that I'm doing right now. This is what I love doing. So mm-hmm. as long as I could do that and, you know, have it for a long time and not be forced to, you know, move all around the world, I'd be happy with that. So with, you know, very private companies now kind of funding uh, rocket launches like SpaceX, and it's this lower risk model of space exploration and, mm-hmm. and, and the field of uh, astrophysics applied, um, do you think that can almost be a place where you can merge an interest in finance and business and economics with an interest in space and astrophysics? Mm-hmm. Um, I definitely think that funding space research is definitely becoming something more and more appealing. Unfortunately, I feel like someone who is dealing with finance would only be limited to the financial um, sort of duties Mm. in that project or someone dealing with the science would only be constrained to that so like i said i'm i don't know what the future holds but as far as i'm concerned right now um as someone who is you know developing mathematical sort of systems and models and whatnot you either deal with one or the other i don't really see something where they where you can marry the two i see so i think we have time for one more question and i wanted to ask you um what advice would you give a new graduate student coming in to uh, Western? What advice would you have for them from your experiences so far? Um, just stay motivated, be self-motivated, and enjoy what you're doing. I mean, um, the transition from undergrad to grad school is that you not this is the time where you can finally, you know, laser in on what you want to do. So I'd say take full advantage of it because, um, I don't know, I'm definitely enjoying my time as a grad student, and if I could do it for the rest of my life, I would. So take advantage of it, live in the moment, and just, you know, work hard. That is great advice, uh, John Franco. Thank you so much for being here. It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. All right, and thank you, everyone, for listening. You have been listening to GradCast, which is the official show of the Society of Graduate Students at Western University. 
And speaking of SOGS, we have a special announcement from them today. Um, SOGS uh, would like you all to know that um, they have peer advisors to help graduate students deal with academic matters. Um, this can include conflicts with supervisors or appealing a grade and or course decision. Um, if you'd like to uh, hear more about uh, peer advisors, you can check out um, the website for that at sogs.ca slash peer dash advisors dash four dash academic dash matters. And we will have that link on this episode's um, webpage as well. Um, as for us, if you would like to listen to us, we air um, every Tuesday at 6 p.m. Uh, on 94.9 CHRW radio. Uh, but you can also listen to all our previous episodes on gradcast.ca, as well as our Spotify and iTunes pages. Um, if you'd like to contact us or be on an episode, you can email us at gradcastradio at gmail.com. And if you'd like to sort of see our behind the scenes sort of shenanigans and pictures, you can uh, follow us on social media on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at gradcastradio. Um, I have been Nick. I'm Connor, and thank you so much for listening. The Gradcast theme tune has been composed for us by Matthew Becker.